Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. As Gaza's death toll continues to climb, will the war expand? I ask Israeli columnist Gideon Levy. Then, I discuss the threat of a regional conflict with director of the Middle East program at London's Chatham House think tank. Also ahead, is Israel actually listening to its strongest allies? Former British cabinet minister turned podcast host Rory Stewart joins me on that and the UK's changing political landscape. Plus, the upcycled self, a new memoir from Grammy-winning artist Tariq Trotter. He speaks to Hari Srinivasan about music and his childhood grief. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. One in every hundred. That is the staggering number of people killed in Gaza over the past three months, according to Palestinian authorities. That's more than 23,000 people, and nearly two-thirds of them are women and children. That human toll is front and center as Western officials visit the region, expressing increasing concern about the situation. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today has been meeting top officials in Israel to get them to do more to protect civilians, allow humanitarian aid in, and to try to prevent a wider war that might spread into Lebanon, for instance. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock has visited the occupied West Bank, where she condemned Israeli settlers' violence towards Palestinians, and today she spoke in Cairo, Egypt. Take a listen. If we are talking about permanent peace, then it must above all be ensured through security. We always spoke about that in the past. My country knows what that means, security guarantees, so that violence and terror, and in Germany fascism, can never again become strong. That requires international responsibility. But is the Israeli government listening to its strongest allies? And what are the long-term consequences of such destruction? My first guest says there is no way to, quote, explain Israel's conduct in Gaza. He is Gideon Levy was an advisor to the late Prime Minister Shimon Peres, then leader of Israel's Labour Party, and is now a columnist for Haaretz. And he's joining us from Tel Aviv. Gideon Levy, welcome back to our programme. Can I just ask you, you know, to explain what, what you said yourself? There is no answer uh, for this conduct. What do you exactly mean by that? Look, by the time we will finish this interview, another baby will be killed in Gaza. By the time that you will finish your show, there will be another two women killed in Gaza. How long can this last? Israel had the full right to go for this campaign, for this war, but there must be limits, and we crossed them so long time ago. But above all, answering your question, where do we aim to? What, what, what will it be any better for Israel's security if another 20,000 Palestinians will be killed in Gaza, if another half a million people will lose their homes, what does this contribute for the security of Israel? We have to realize that the goals that Israel had declared are unachievable, or at least partly unachievable. And we should concentrate now about creating a new reality and not killing and killing for the purpose of killing. 
Gideon, I want to get into that in a moment, but to answer and to illustrate what you just said about more babies, more women being killed, there is the latest, and we have to say, graphic video that's coming in from Gaza today, uh, resulting from airstrikes uh, last night. Um, the hospital at Al-Aqsa there in Gaza says 57 people were killed, nearly 70 injured, at least 10 of those were children, the hospital says. So... The government keeps saying they're doing their best to avoid civilian death. The U.S. keeps doing a shuttle diplomacy which seems principally aimed at minimizing civilian deaths, not only that, but also to minimize the chance of an, of a, of an expanded war. But in your mind, having covered so many of these Israel-Gaza wars, what is the point, what is the purpose three months in of this, as you, as you put it, very heavy death toll. What is the strategic point? I doubt, I doubt very much if there is one. First of all, everyone is paying its, his lip service. The Americans, the Israelis, they do their best. The Americans ask gently Israel to refrain from killing civilians, but the outcome is very clear. The, it is a bloodbath, and, and you, cannot, you cannot ignore it. The only one who ignores it is Israeli media, by the way, if you let me make a remark about them, because the Israelis are the only people in the world right now who are not exposed at all to what's going on in Gaza. Nothing. We were always laughing at the Russian TV covering the war in Ukraine. Ours is much worse because here it is voluntarily. Nobody dictates us not to show the suffer and the punishment of Gaza. And Israelis are not exposed to it. But that's just a, by the way, remark. There are goals. The prime minister had declared them, namely releasing the hostages and crashing Hamas. After three months, I can tell you we are not getting closer to both of them. I think about, about the, the releasing the hostages, which from my point of view must be in first priority and they don't go together. I think that here we are going far and far. We are much more distance now than a few weeks ago from releasing the hostages. And this should bother any person with, with conscience. Uh, Gideon, I want to ask you about that because uh, that is obviously we've seen the biggest uh, wish and demand from the Israeli people to bring back their loved ones who are still held hostage uh, and under bombardment, by the way, and under Hamas control inside uh, Gaza. Uh, the Israeli government, when there was the last truce, maintained that only its tough action brought that truce uh, to bear and released uh, more than 100 hostages. Um, there are others who say, well, actually, it was negotiations uh, with Hamas through third parties that did that. What do you think? What do the Israeli people think is the best way to bring hostages back? It's even not a question what I think. It's a question what is the reality. Until now, Israel hardly released one hostage by force. All the hostages who were released, were released throughout negotiation. But Israel always chooses the violent way as the first priority, not only to release the hostages, by the way, also to solve the problem of Gaza, also to solve the Palestinian issue. It's always, first of all, let's try violence, and then if it fails, let's think about something else. Why wouldn't we, after this terrible war, 
Why wouldn't we once and for all try another way, another way that we never tried? Why not to start with diplomacy? Now, now, why not to start with talking as first priority and shooting as the last priority? But Israel right now is very far off it. Israel is supporting this war almost wall to wall. Israeli public opinion supports this war and does not want to see it ending. And this worries me and makes me very sad personally as an Israeli. Can I ask you about expanding the war? Because that also is a matter of great concern, um, especially to you know, the surrounding nations and to the United States and, and its allies, uh, basically Israel's strongest allies. As you very well know, but I'll just remind everybody what's been happening, um, the assassination of the deputy Hamas leader in Beirut this past week, the killing of a Hezbollah leader in South Lebanon, one of which has been claimed by Israel, that one. Uh, then, you know, there have been Hezbollah response in terms of targeting important Israeli targets inside uh, Israel. And Alon Pincus, who, as you very well know, a fellow columnist at Haaretz, but also a former Israeli consul general in New York, wrote this. He basically said, Israel seems resigned to, to the idea, in other words, actually wanting a bigger war. So much so that a Washington Post article quoted U.S. officials expressing alarm and estimating that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is encouraging escalation as a key to his political survival and further distancing himself from responsibility for the October 7th uh, debacle. Um, you know, that, that is an incredibly damning thing for an actual Israeli former government um, official to say that any country would want an expanded war. Do you think there's any truth in that at all? First of all, I can only guess and only hope that there is no truth in it. I think that expanding this war also toward the northern uh, uh, front, namely against Hezbollah, will be a game changer and will create a reality that Israelis and Israel never met before. We should be aware to it. It's very nice to talk here about expanding the war, but what can happen then, I think, is much beyond we ever saw in Israel, in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, in Haifa and other places. Listen, I give uh, Netanyahu more credit than most of my colleagues and friends in the way that I don't think that his personal ambitions are the only motivation which motivates him. I can't believe it. I'm sure that his personal motivation is part of his considerations. I'm sure that for him personally, expanding this war is the only outlet before elections, resignation and uh, inquiry but to say that he does everything only to, to, to maintain and nothing else interests him, that's even too much for Netanyahu, I think. I hope I'm not wrong. You have spent a lot of your career essentially going against, I'm going to say, going against the tribe, against the herd. You've been in the occupied West Bank a lot. You speak like this uh, inside Israel and uh, internationally on programs like this one. It must be very difficult for you, number one. And what is the reaction to the news you bring back from the occupied West Bank, for instance? It is difficult, but believe me, to be a journalist in Gaza right now is so much more difficult. So it's really not for me to complain now when people are dying in Gaza. I'm really not the issue. 
it's not easy. In this war, it became even harder because my best friends, some of my best friends, and even family members changed their minds on the 7th of October. It's unbelievable what happened here. I mean, everything collapsed. All the values that people believed in collapsed only because of this barbaric attack, which was a barbaric attack, but shouldn't change any values. I'm, whist I'm really whistling in the darkness for many years. I'm used to it. I don't think I have much influence, but I know nothing but to tell what I think is my truth. And I don't see any other field that I would like to, to be active rather than telling the story of the occupation for so many years to those who don't want to hear and don't want to read and don't want to know. But by the end of the day, the occupation defines Israel more than any other thing. The apartheid defines the regime of Israel more than any other thing. And we cannot continue with this blindness. Israelis are living very self-content, happy about their lives, which, is, which are usually quite good, not in times of war, obviously. And they are not even curious to know what is happening half an hour away from our homes. And half an hour away from our homes, even before this horrible war, there is an inhuman reality which must come to its end one day. And as long as we'll continue with this blindness, we will never get to any, any good place. We Israelis. Gideon Levy, thank you very much. And next we are going to explore the day after and how this all ends. But thank you so much for being with us. And obviously we want to just remind everybody what Gideon just said. According to press activists and groups like the Committee to Protect Journalists, some 79 journalists have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. As Gideon pointed out, it is incredibly dangerous for journalists to be working there. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, Hezbollah has carried out its deepest attack into northern Israel since October 8th. The militant group saying today it targeted an Israeli military command center in response to the killing, as I mentioned, of a Hamas leader and a Hezbollah commander. Israel has claimed responsibility for the killing of the Hezbollah commander in southern Lebanon, but not for the drone strike which killed a top Hamas leader last week. Take a listen to what U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has to say. Well, first, Ian, with regard to, uh, to Lebanon, it's clearly not in the interest of anyone, Israel, Lebanon, Hezbollah, for that matter, uh, to, see this, uh, to see this escalate and to see an actual conflict. 
And the Israelis have been very clear with us that they want to find a diplomatic way forward, a diplomatic way forward that creates the kind of security that allows Israelis to return home. Nearly 100,000 Israelis have been forced to leave their homes in northern Israel because of the threat uh, coming from uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, but also allows Lebanese uh, to return to their homes in southern Lebanon. And we're working intensely on that effort um, and doing so diplomatically. A difficult job indeed. Here to discuss is Sanam Vakil. She's director of the Middle East program at London's Chatham House Think Tank. Welcome to the program. So do you feel, like apparently the Secretary of State does, that things are really teetering on the edge right now in terms of the war expanding from Gaza and across Israel's northern border into Lebanon? There is a deep concern. What has become almost normalized, simmering tensions could really boil over. And that's really where we are. We've had attacks coming from the Houthis in Yemen um, that have attacked uh, maritime shipping. Uh, we have seen back and forth between Hezbollah and Israel at a dangerous level, despite the regular messaging from Hassan Nasrallah that there is no intention of regionalizing this war. Uh, there have been attacks in Syria, attacks in Iraq, um, and, and this could very well lead to a miscalculation. Can, can I just point out and just emphasize what you just said about Nasrallah? Kim Gattas, as you know, Beirut-based journalist, has tweeted, um, Hezbollah and Iran have signaled clearly, repeatedly, they want to avoid a wider war. Israel keeps testing that position. At some point, it will miscalculate. This was after these assassinations um, that we've just been talking about. You know, you know the region. Everybody thinks they have a playing, a very clever game, you know, targeted mm -hmm. just so, mm -hmm. calibrated mm -hmm. just so. But is miscalculation something that could happen? I mean, the Israelis and the Lebanese have already seen what happened across their border in 2006, most notably. Yes, I mean, this is the clear risk. And this was part of uh, Anthony Blinken's uh, primary objective uh, for this trip. Uh, to message that escalation is not in anybody's interest. Uh, the problem is that there are two different uh, sort of strategies and, and, and timelines underway in the region. No country, uh, no state or non-state actor in the region is really pushing for escalation, whereas uh, the Israeli government is uh, trying to reset um, its deterrence levels since October 7th, and that requires them uh, not only to try and uh, decapitate Hamas leadership, which we know 94 days on from October 7th they haven't been able to do, but also to try to push back Hezbollah and make clear that their borders are safe. And, and that's what's on ongoing right now. Whereas the rest of the region, be it Iran, be it Hezbollah, be it the wider um, Arab partners of the United States have no interest in seeing this explode because this could really take things into a new orbit. And just remind uh, everybody, I mean, I covered the 2006 war. It wasn't a victory by Israel or, or by Hezbollah. It, it at best was determined mm -hmm. to have been fought to a draw. Then there was a UN resolution, I think it's 1701, that required them to move back from, from demarcated lands. Apparently neither of them kept to that uh, commitment. So is there a political solution that actually can reinforce and de-escalate the Lebanon or the Hezbollah-Israel tension right now? 
Well, uh, Amos Hochstein, uh, another U.S. official, was just in Lebanon, I think, for uh, this very issue, trying to find a space-saving solution to push Hezbollah back, according to U.N. Resolution 1701, past the Litani River, um, and uh, also find a face-saving way for Hezbollah to do that. There have been suggestions that Hezbollah is pulling back. But at the same time, uh, you see the Israelis keep pressing and keep striking at uh, commanders in, in uh, Lebanon, and, and this might be low-level escalation, but there will be one day uh, where this goes too far, and this could be a very different war than 2006. I spoke um, just when all this sort of flared up to uh, the Lebanese uh, foreign minister, mm. who was, at the time was in Washington and was about to visit the White House to talk about these tensions. This is what he said to me, partly. Mm. We don't want any escalation in the war. We don't want the, what's happening in the south to be spread to over Lebanon. We don't like a regional war because it's dangerous to everybody. Dangerous to Lebanon, dangerous to Israel, and to the countries surrounding Israel. I mean, he's pretty much laid it out, but it's very important for the prime minister of that country, an ally of the United States, uh, to be saying that. How does... Um, Israel, if, if it does broaden into a big war, how do you separate a war against Hezbollah from a war against Lebanon itself and the Western-backed Lebanese armed forces, which have also been targeted? I don't think you can really. Uh, and I think this is, again, why... Because the Israelis say we're not striking, the, you know, the Lebanese state. This will be seen as a broader war. And, and it's a war that uh, won't just be about Hezbollah. Uh, this will involve uh, the whole system. Hezbollah itself um, is embedded into that system, and it is part of uh, the governance system, uh, you know, whether the international community or the Lebanese like it or not. And, and that in itself is the problem. I want to ask you a couple of questions. In the Times of London this Sunday, the Sunday Times, you might have read it, there was a front-page article by an Israeli journalist, Anshel Pfeffer, mm -hmm who talked about the stash of papers and documents and maybe hard drives that some of the Israeli forces had found apparently in Yahya Sinwar's office. Um, it talked about, there. it was from, from, from a couple of years ago, but talked about trying to disrupt any kind of normalization, whether it was at the time between Turkey and Israel. Um, and, and it talked about, you know, their sort of strategy in the reason. Then before... There was also, you know, I think Chatham House even put this out, Bronwyn Maddox, who used to be a journalist, had interviewed years ago Ahuri, the Hamas leader who was assassinated. And he had said to her that our aim is to uh, radicalize, in her words, the Palestinian population so that they do not go towards peace. And Hamas, you know, wants to delegitimize uh, the Palestinian Authority and sort of disable any sentiment towards peace. Do you think that's still what they think? And in which case, how does one get, get, get over this? How does one get to a day after? Well, certainly uh, there are elements of uh, Palestinian leadership, Hamas leadership, uh, that have uh, more radical sentiments. I think uh, where we are today is uh, 
normalization has slowed, if not stopped completely, um, and will be very uh, far and hard to achieve without a ceasefire and without attending to the humanitarian issues on the table, as well as um, without a plan uh, that addresses uh, the issue of Palestinian statehood that has been completely abandoned. So that's, I think, primary task um, here. But beyond that, uh, what is urgently needed is uh, a pathway uh, that creates uh, a process where Palestinian leaders can work together uh, for reform, accountability, governance, um, with elections at the end of this process. Um, and uh, an opportunity for Palestinians themselves to elect their future leaders should certainly be um, an opportunity uh, given to Palestinians, uh, not one that they've had uh, for well over two decades now. Yeah, they haven't gone to elections. Um, Last question. You are an expert and a student of, of the Iran piece of this whole picture. It also seems to be trying to staying out of a direct confrontation. How long can that last? And what really does Iran want out of all of this? Well, Iran's motivations are, are multiple. Um, ultimately, the Islamic Republic has always been driven by its own sense of survival above all, and its security and stability has always been paramount. It has relied on the axis of resistance, this network that it has cultivated and created over a number of decades, um, as its primary uh, tool of deterrence against Israel and the United States, uh, two countries that it has defined as its threats in the region. Um, and so it will continue to support the axis of resistance. But at the same time, I Iran does see uh, the US as a declining influence in the region, a, a destabilizing uh, regional influence above all. Um, and Iran has, over the past few years, restored ties with the Gulf um, Arab countries. Um, it is looking to forge stronger economic linkages and be part of uh, an integrated Middle East as well. Um, and that, of course, is hard to achieve with its oppositional stance with the United States, its accelerating nuclear program, and of course, this underlying tension uh, with Israel that is, I think, uh, Tehran is calculating will increase over this year in particular. And just very briefly before, before I let you go, do you think there's a, a way to pull things back? The Israeli foreign minister told the US foreign minister today they are looking for some kind of diplomatic solution. Yes, I think there is. Uh, and it begins with a ceasefire. That ceasefire can set the pathway forward uh, to uh, release hostages uh, that have been completely neglected, as Gideon Levy um, brought up in your previous interview. Beyond that, of course, um, the Arab states, partners of the United States, are going to need to play a really important integral role in guaranteeing Palestinian security, Israeli security, providing a bridge. Uh, to Iran, making sure they're not an, a spoiler in what comes next. This is going to be a long process. Waiting for the day after to begin that process is a bit too late. Salam Vakir, Chatham House, thank you so much indeed for joining us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. 
Meantime, governments around the world are coming increasingly under scrutiny as they grapple with how to respond three months into a war that started with their staunch support for Israel's right to self-defense after the October 7th massacres by Hamas. That has now led to the staggering Gaza death toll, as we've been discussing, in which 1% of its 2 million inhabitants um, have been killed. Here in the UK, Foreign Minister David Cameron is now calling for a, quote, sustainable ceasefire. The first thing I'm worried about is getting more aid into Gaza. I'm worried about people going hungry in Gaza and that leading to potentially starvation. I'm worried about people getting ill in Gaza and that leading to large-scale disease outbreaks. And we need more trucks with more aid getting into Gaza. And I've been talking with the Israeli government and others and visiting Egypt and visiting Jordan to try and make sure that happens. Look, of course, Israel has a right to combat Hamas and to stop a 7th of October event happening again. It was an appalling slaughter, an appalling event, and we support them as they do that. But we must have more aid in Gaza to stop starvation, to stop disease. My next guest knows the region very well as the UK's former International Development Secretary and a former Tory MP, Rory Stewart, is now co-host of the popular podcast, The Rest is Politics, which covers issues ranging from this war to climate change and democracy. And Rory is here with me in London. Welcome back to the Thank program. You. You've, you know, we've we've had a lot of conversation, you know, and leading up to you now with the different aspects of what might happen and where we are. First and foremost, you heard Sanam say that the only way to get out of this is to have a ceasefire and to try to fix this diplomatically. What does David Cameron and Annalena Baerbock and Keir Starmer, what do they all mean by sustainable ceasefire? And is that a sustainable position? No, it's, it's not a sustainable position. A sustainable ceasefire isn't really a ceasefire. It's a way of saying that they uh, want to signal that they'd like the fighting to stop, but they don't want to restrict Israel's ability to conduct operations. And a lot of this is to do with uh, Britain, Germany's relationship with Israel. It's to do with politics inside the United Kingdom. I mean, this is a very difficult time in the United Kingdom. The Jewish community feels under a lot of attack. There's a rise in anti-Semitic uh, attacks, horror in relation to the Hamas attack and of course the relationship with the United States. But increasingly, of course, this position is untenable. Quite clearly, what's happening now in Gaza is not achieving Israel's objectives. It's killing, as you said, many thousands of people, including women and children. Any attempt by Israel to show that it is willing to take revenge and action has been demonstrated weeks ago. And the British government should, I think, clearly now be coming out for a ceasefire. And then what? Because they all say, I think what they, how they describe uh, sustainable also is that something that lasts. In other words, you can't leave this smoldering fire, smoldering and wait for, you know, another massacre and another round of, of killings of thousands well, the, of, of Palestinians. Well, the, the truth is nothing gets fixed overnight. Uh, you put in ceasefires in place, Ceasefires get broken, they can be temporary. That's the business. That's what happened in Northern Ireland. It's what happens with conflicts all around the world. And putting the situation together again is gonna be unbelievably difficult. I mean, Israel's reputation now in the Middle East has been put back decades. The United States' reputation in the Middle East has been unbelievably harmed by its support for Israel. It's very difficult to imagine countries wanting to be generous and getting involved in reconstructing Gaza. That will cost hundreds of billions before you even get into the points that Sanam was making. 
about the politics. Mm. Who's going to lead Gaza? Who's going to be the government? Uh, talking about uh, the US position, what about the British position? The Saudi uh, ambassador to the UK was on the BBC today saying Israel is a blind spot for the UK, which makes it a blind spot for peace. Um, and he called on the UK to treat Israel like the rest of the world. Um, what do you think he means? Well, I think he means that with the rest of the world, the UK would be calling for a ceasefire. And it's astonishing that neither uh, Rishi Sunak nor Keir Starmer is prepared to do that. I mean, I cannot personally see any justification for these continuing operations. We know from Iraq, we know from Afghanistan, that this is not a way to deal with a terrorist group. You know, tens of thousands of people were killed in Afghanistan claiming that that was going to somehow eliminate the Taliban. And of course, now a Taliban government is back mm -hmm. in control. So the, the, the British government is in a completely untenable situation. This word sustainable ceasefire is David Cameron, Rishi Sunak somehow trying to placate Israel, but they're not getting any influence on Israel. Implicate their so. own voters as well. Implicate some of their own But it's not well. yeah. working. Um, it's not even very popular in Britain. I mean, there are many, many people in Britain who are horrified by what's well, right. going on. Well, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's not, yeah. you know, citizens. I mean, yeah. even yesterday, President Biden was interrupted briefly in a campaign speech in South Carolina at a, you know, a, a, a black church where he was trying to appeal to the, to, the, to the community there. And he actually said, I understand your passion. And uh, I have been quietly trying to persuade Israel to significantly, you know, disengage from Gaza. His Secretary of State is there right now. Given all of that, mm -hmm. if we just come now to politics, I mean, I don't mm -hmm. expect you yeah. to weigh in on how mm -hmm. it's going to affect the U.S. election, but, you know, there's going to be an election here, too. Mm -hmm. How do you think this will or will it affect U.K. politics? And do you think this Tory government is, is here for the, for the long term? I think it's very likely at the moment that the Conservative government will lose and Keir Starmer will come in. But this event, Keir Starmer's refusal to call for a ceasefire, is damaging for Keir Starmer and Labour. There are perhaps 30 Labour seats where Muslim voters are swing voters and they feel very, very angry about this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an issue where Keir Starmer, who's looking for ways to differentiate himself, is in danger of being outflanked. If the US changes its position, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, changes his position. Keir Starmer will find himself left behind. So there has to be a way to do something that politicians seem to find very difficult, which is to say the Hamas attacks were unbelievably brutal, horrifying atrocities that killed 1,400 people, and Israel had a right to defend itself. And also, enough already. Far too many people have been killed. There is no justification for these ongoing operations. Can I just switch topics uh, about, you know, politics here, which are incredibly, incredibly uh, important, and that is the issue of climate, something that you're very, very, um, you know, involved in. Right now, former uh, Tory Energy Minister Chris Skidmore has resigned as an MP to protest this government, Sunak's legislation to issue new oil and gas licenses. He said, I can no longer stand by. The climate crisis that we face is too important to politicize or ignore. In a word, after the COP, you know, in the mm. UAE, is this government, do you think, committed to net zero, to the, what it used to be a really prominent climate leader? I think the government is trimming. So I think it's trying to placate bits on the right wing of the Conservative Party that are very skeptical about issues to address climate change. It's trying to deal with issues around energy security, trying to deal with economic growth. Mm. 
So it's found itself in an opposition. I think the prime minister believes that climate change is a real problem. He's trying to do things about it, but he would say that he's being pragmatic. And the risk of that is that when you lose the clear policy direction, all the businesses and others who've been making investments on the basis of what governments have said over the last 10 years begin to think, well, maybe the government isn't that serious anymore. That's the real problem here. You, it's fine to say I'm being pragmatic, but what you're missing is that the signal that you're passing undermines an enormous amount of investment. You were president, if that's the right word, of Give Directly, a charity that believes in giving directly. Now you're an advisor because your other you know, work has taken over a little bit. I want to ask you to explain, I think, a partnership you've gone into with the Scottish government to help distribute funds designed you know, by COP to mitigate the effects of climate change, and that's in Africa. Tell me about that. Yeah, so one of the great insights is that with climate change, the most important thing is to get support to people before the climate disaster happens. If you can get support to people before the flood occurs, then they can move livestock, they can move their houses. If the flood hits them and then you provide support afterwards, their lives have been completely devastated. It costs you 10 times more, and of course, communities are destroyed. Mm -hmm. We are now in a world where with AI, with computer technology, we can predict more accurately we could in the past. It's still not easy, but more accurately where floods are going. So one of the things we're doing with the Scottish government and others is looking at anticipatory action. And in particular, what Give Directly does is to understand that the most easy thing you can do, the most effective thing you can do is to give unconditional cash. Because every house is different. You know, you may want to fix your roof or you may want to set up a small business. I may want to get my kids back into school or I may want to buy food. Cash is what allows you to make the choice. It's a radically humble, respectful way of providing assistance. And very quickly, we've got 15 seconds. Universal basic income is a, is a bigger version of give directly. Some people say, oh, no, makes people lazy, doesn't let them work, etc." So the evidence is incredibly strong. It's a revolution in international development that unconditional cash is now outperforming in almost every study almost every conventional development intervention. It's transforming nutrition, education, health, shelter. Cash is the way forward. And on that note, Boris Stewart, thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Co-host of The Rest is Politics. And next, we revisit a recent conversation with Grammy Award-winning artist Tariq Trotter, better known as Black Thought from the hip-hop group The Roots. Trotter turned to music after a series of traumatic experiences growing up, including the murder of his own mother when he was 16. He details these tragedies in his new memoir, The Upcycled Self, and he speaks to Hari Srinivasan now about how his childhood impacted his career. Christian, thanks. Tariq Totter, also known as Black Thought to most of us who have listened to him for so many years as part of The Roots. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, uh, congratulations on this book. I am not surprised that you're venturing out into this sort of written word expression. Um, what does the upcycled self mean? I'm from Philadelphia, from a specific place and in, in, in time there. Um, where you know you had to sort of move through life with uh, 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 a layer of of, of scar to of, of callus, right? Of, of of scar tissue, almost as a, a protective sort of thing. Um, you know, and it and it serves a purpose at at uh, your one 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 time in your life, or at least it may. And then as we evolve, as we you know mature, um, as we move on in life, uh, you know the, these things no longer serve us in the same way. So the upcycle self, it speaks to you know 
the wisdom it takes to recognize when to, you know, leave a thing in the past, yeah. um, to adapt a, a, a way or, 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 you know, um, to, to, to move forward in, 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 in a different way. You start out this book with something I, I suspect anybody would want to leave in the past. And it's a horrendous story of you setting your house on fire as a little kid playing with toys, uh, you know, being a curious kid and starting a fire with your TV. What were some of the repercussions of that event? Yeah, you know, the book actually begins with uh, with the fire. Um, it took place when I was six years old. I burned my, uh, you know, my family home down. And um, yeah, I think, you know, the story to follow um, puts you in into the the mind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the story is told in the spirit of the Phoenix. So, I, I'm, you know, I think I, I very much um, emerged, you know, from the flame. So it begins with the fire, even though that wasn't my first um, traumatic experience, even at that young age, it mm. was... Um, you know, it was a watershed moment in that way. And it was a moment, it was my earliest memory of a time after which, uh, you know, things would never be the same, you know, but, um, you know, talk, talk about uh, uh, just curiosity, right, of, 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 of a child and um, the tremendous amount of grace and wisdom that it took my mother you know, for her to extend and not come home, you know, after having lost everything and sort of, you know, lose it. Her main concern was that no one had been hurt. And, um, you know, I wasn't remanded. I wasn't punished in the way that I'd expected to be. And I think, um, there's 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 beauty and and there was a there was great value in that and my mother sort of recognizing that it was my curiosity and it was yeah. my uh, you know imagination that 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 led to uh, you know to, to 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 the event so she was able to help me um, you know to encourage me to lean into that curiosity and and into that imagination by um, getting into the arts. So what did that do to your mom? You think? I mean, because she had worked so hard to your your father um, had been murdered um earlier and she was raising you too and she's built all these things she's saved up she's kind of built something normal for the two of you as normal mm -hmm. as can be and then to literally see it go up in smoke what does that do to her psyche what what did you find out over time it really i mean over time i i came to realize just the tremendous amount of uh strength and and you know resilience that she had because you think back, you know, my, when she lost my father, my father was very young. He was you know, maybe 26. My mother was still very young. When you at the time, there's no way that she could have fully recovered because I think maybe, you know, maybe four years or so had passed, if that. So you know, she was, the whole family was still very much in the, uh, in the grieving process, yeah. you know? So this was sort of, um, you know, back, back to back loss in that way that, yeah, I mean, you know, it should have and, and could have uh you know uh been devastating but um it wasn't in 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 many ways so who were the men that you looked at as role models or father figures during this impressionable time um my my earliest examples of of manhood um you know aside from you know what i saw in my grandparents like in my in my you know my father's father um yeah. who I saw you know rarely and um in in my mother's uh stepfather who who I referred to as as my grandfather they were sort of the examples um but then there were uh you know the gentlemen that were in my mother's life so my the people that my mother uh, would date you know my, my mother's male friends um a, a colorful 
cast of, of, of characters, um, you know, set uh, many an example. Some were good examples, some were bad, you know. Um, but yeah, that that was sort of what what I had, and uh, and I had again my older brother, um, who for all intents and purposes um, was away from the family because he spent, you know, um, he essentially came to adulthood in juvenile in the juvenile justice system, and yeah. then you know you graduated. Your mom figured out somehow that your curiosity also translated into the ability for you to express yourself artistically, and she pushed you into that how did she do that i think the earliest indication of you know her sort of understanding that uh that thing that that dynamic was uh you know just in her encouraging me to uh to take art classes i think in in in, in the summer well you know even before i took visual art classes my mother yeah. um she like signed me up for for choir and you know she'd always encourage me to sort of lean into music but when she found yeah. out that um visual art was sort of my thing then she was really really just super supportive of that and um yeah she you know at every turn she would uh, register me for a thing um anything that was free i was definitely going to do but you know <laughs> the, all, all the other things that we anything we could afford or save up for um yeah. she also would encourage. You also are, you know, very vulnerable in this book, and you write about some very painful moments. Um, in terms of your mom, uh, you basically have kind of a scene that you play out, uh, and it, it's to try to essentially rescue her from what would be a crack house. Uh, what was mm -hmm. that like? I mean, you know, it was that may have been. I mean, I think about low points of my life. You know, yeah. dark moments. Um, you know, I don't know that I've ever been as resigned as you know just sad and down you know bad as i was in that moment um and it's something that i think i've grappled with um over the years but yeah in that moment um you know i went to go and uh you know i was we've been looking for my mom for um a, a, a period of days you know a couple of days had gone by and i i tracked her down and she was in a drug a drug house and um yeah you know i thought i was um you know, the showing up like the Calvary. <laughs> I was there to, you know, to save my mom, you know, take her out of this place. And, um, you know, it was the heart. You know, I had to accept the harsh reality of just, you know, the matter of fact that she in that moment preferred to remain. Right. She didn't she didn't want to leave. So I yeah. couldn't convince her to leave. And it was uh, yeah, that was it was just a super gut wrenching moment for me as a young person, you know, because I was um, I mean, you know, as I recall, I may have been I was 14, you know, 13 or yeah. 14 years old. Later in the book, you were, you're not living with your mom. You're someplace else. H how did you find out that your mother was dead? Yeah. Um, my mother was murdered when I was, uh, I think I just turned 16 or somewhere between 15 and 16. My, my mother was murdered. I, um, I moved out of the city of Philadelphia to, uh, to Michigan, to Southfield, Michigan, right outside Detroit to um to stay with uh, an uncle with my one of my father's brothers who I never met um you know just because um the streets had gotten so crazy um my neighborhood was crazy lots of my friends were um you know being murdered or you know sent to prison and um it was uh you know it was the middle of 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 you know 1980s drug crack epidemic in in everything that sort of came along with it so my family yeah. had sent me to Michigan for a while and um 
you know, it didn't work out in Michigan. But when I came back to Philly, it was uh, we were we had agreed that I wouldn't return to my old neighborhood. So, no, I wasn't living with my mother. I was staying um, in an apartment that my grandparents owned. She was sort of living her life and I was living mine. I had school. I had work. And, you know, days, sometimes weeks would go by without us, you know, uh, seeing one another. But we would speak on the phone. And I just remember uh, there was a period uh, during which a few days had gone by when no one in the family had heard from or seen my mother, which also also, again, wasn't, um, you know, out of mm-hmm. out of the norm. Right. And over, you know, a period of days through that process of elimination, um, my mother was identified as as a Jane Doe who had who had, you know, turned up uh, in, in the morgue. So, yeah. And, and you know, the way I found out, I mean, it was I don't know, I think my whole family, you know, even by that by that point had become uh, a bit numb to um, just experiences with, that would otherwise be you know, yeah. life shattering traumatic experience for other people. We were just so used to um loss and 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 grief that um yeah I don't know that they that they uh pulled any punches. I don't know that I think you know they my aunt as I recall my aunt and my grandmother so you know two my, my grandmother and her sister um just confirmed with me that the body the Jane Doe that had been you know found that we suspected was my mother yes that was mm-hmm. that was Cassie you know and um you know we just started to move move forward with the arrangements you know it was um it's wild I didn't even I don't remember having shed a tear uh during my mother's death until I saw her body being uh you know lowered lowered into the ground at that time uh, you're also at a uh, creative arts high school, uh, the uh, Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts, Kappa, mm-hmm. right? And we know who they are now, but who was in that high school at the time that was, I guess, your competition, your classmates, uh, your peers that were also performers yeah. that went on to be more successful? I went to that school, um, which was sort of Philadelphia's version of a uh, LaGuardia in New York City, or you know, like fame. It was a, uh, it was like fame <laughs> of the TV series and and the and the film. Um, and um, yeah, I was a visual arts major, but there were just very many uh, uh, singers and instrumentalists there um, who were already you know forces to be reckoned with in their own right. So Questlove, who you know he and I met there and started the Roots, but there was also Boys to Men who before they even came together as boys to men were parts of, you know, other male ensembles who, you know, just beautiful, um, you know, harmonies. And, you know, so it was walking through the halls of that school um, made me feel the way it must have felt to, you know, like in the days of of, of corner boy doo-wop. Band, yeah. You know what I'm saying? They would be, you know, at any given moment, someone would break out into song and you'll turn a corner and there'd be Juan Ye and Nate, you know, working on a harmony. So there was that. And it was a, a, a huge confidence builder for me. You know what I mean? To see kids that yeah. I knew, um, you know, doing like going on, you know, to the onboard and upward. So how did you and Amir Questlove find each other? Questlove and I found each other in the, in the principal's office um, <laughs> where we were... Uh, you know, it probably wasn't the first time we, you know, were in the space together, but we were like two ships, um, you know, passing each other at sea in the in in, in the night, um, usually. And it was uh, in this instance, I think I was going, I was on my way out um, on a suspension, um, which, you know, I, I got suspended sometimes. So I was, uh, I'd done something and I was, <laughs> I was uh, being suspended from school. So I was in the office and um Quest walked in. I think he was bringing like flowers and apples to the 
to the faculty. And um he uh, he had on he had on a jacket of a hand painted um denim jacket, which was in another, one of my side hustles at the time was I would do hand painted denim, like you know, jeans and jackets, and I would sell them, you know, out really out of out of my locker. So yeah. the jacket that he wore that day. And um, and I think maybe his necklace, too, that he had on was uh, sort of the gateway to um, a dynamic that will grow where, you know, um, I was able to put him on to parts of elements of, of the culture um, and you know, hip hop music that he had been exposed to yet and vice versa. And, uh, you know, we became an, an odd couple and, and we remain as such. I think, you know, maybe both of us, you know, just had a desire to. You know, for 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 brotherhood to experience that brotherhood because even even though I had a brother, I still hadn't really experienced that dynamic in the way that you know other siblings had. So um, it was great, yeah, to have a brother at that time. And then um, our relationship evolved into something else when it became a business relationship, and it evolved into uh, now what is a, a marriage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we yeah. went we from, from brotherhood to marriage. So I, I wonder, um, you formed this group. At the time, it wasn't called The Roots, right? What was it called? Before we were called The Roots, we, yeah. we were called Square Roots. Square, that's, that's right. So Square Roots. And I wonder, uh, the Square Roots, in the type of influences that were mixing to make the type of music that you wanted to make, and put that in the context of what was happening at the time, because what we see of The Roots now, uh, which is a mix of so many different influences, is not what was kind of playing on the streets in the car stereos uh, as you as as you were growing up and this group was starting. Yeah, I think you know um, it was a huge challenge um, because not only did we not you know, like we didn't look, we didn't have the, the same, you know, aesthetic as uh, our, our contemporaries at the time, Um, nor yeah. did we sound or feel, nor did like our music sound or feel like theirs. So, you know, in the, a mixtape, mixed radio show era, um, the Roots music sort of stood out like a sore thumb. Um, And it it's wild that, you know, it stood out in its musicality, you know, yeah. because we, it was live instrumentation and it just didn't feel like um you know the standard at that time it just felt more um electronic and you know we had to fight to represent those influences right in yeah. order to uh you know to 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 expand sort of the palette of um of uh the culture you know and um it's something that you know i mean it's taken some time but i think over time we the roots has you know been hugely responsible for reestablishing that standard and you know now you see Folks who go out to tour, to do gigs, um, studio sessions, you rarely see, I mean, even within the realm of hip hop, people who don't use live instrumentation. Is there, um, you have been in so many different formats. You write about the fact that you were graffiti artist um at the time that could be considered vandalism uh depending on who who saw your work right you've done visual arts you've uh been rhyming for decades uh here you are writing a book i mean what is it about self-expression that keeps you wanting to try it in another format it's the the challenge of of taking on a new sort of format uh, working in a new medium 
of allowing, you know, one discipline to inform another. Um, it keeps me engaged. And, you know, I, I always meet, you know, folks, sometimes it's one person, sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's more. But, you know, if there's one person that, you know, my work, my story um, has resonated with in a way that, you know, has, you know, given them any deeper insight into themselves or into their story, then yeah. um, then it's worth it. You know what I mean? And that is, uh, you know, it's um, it's a, a, a two sided therapy. Right. Like this is my like this is is the 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 work, the process is cathartic for me in that way. So um yeah, I just keep you know accepting new challenges because there's nothing that you know, I mean, there's so many people that I've seen come from Philadelphia um yeah. and 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 try a thing and win. And and those who have won, though all those many people who I'm able to list who have won, they've won because they they didn't give up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, you know, I feel like if anything, any challenge that that I take on, as long as I stick to it, um, I'm going to be able to see it through to fruition. The book is called The Upcycled Self, A Memoir on the Art of Becoming Who We Are. Author Tariq Trotter, also known as Black Thought from the Roots. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. And finally tonight, Rue David Bowie. That's my French the David Bowie Street. Paris has named a street after the late rock icon on what would have been his 77th birthday. The celebration was attended by friends and fans, which include the mayor of the 13th arrondissement of Paris, or district, who came up with the idea. Jerome Kume remembered Bowie's pioneering genius, saying that he allowed people, quote, to be freer and to feel like they could grow wings by listening to his music. The City of Lights was where the British Trailblazer first performed outside the UK back in 1965 and where he recorded two of his albums. And fans can look forward to a new vinyl LP that's set to be released on April 20th. And there's more amazing news. Waiting in the Sky includes four new songs that were recorded during the Ziggy Stardust era. So let's leave you now with some of Ziggy. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. Now Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with Webb and Gilly and the spiders from Mars. He played it left hand, but made it too far. Became the special man, then we were Ziggy's band. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.